Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 45. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you all had a great week. We had a pretty good week. We had a pretty good week. Pretty good week. Um, We were in the newspaper. In the papers. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, also known as the AJC. They did a story about uh, podcasts in Atlanta that you should listen to, and we were one of them, which felt really great because it made us feel like people care. (laughs) They like us. They like us. They really like us. (laughs) And and it was cool because we got to be featured there with um, some of our friends um, and podcasts that we really respect. So our friend Paul Ollinger, who has a podcast called Crazy Money. Yeah. And then Jeff Dollar and Callie Dollar, who have The Upside. Great podcast. Yeah, we're also part of it. So we all need to check them out. Yeah, check them out. That was – it was awesome. It was like a a bright spot of this week. Yeah. I thought I was doing good this week. I was feeling good. I felt like I was on top of things. And then last night I FaceTimed with my brother, Uncle Baby Bobby, and he told me that I look like if the Roseanne couch were a person. (laughs) I'm sorry. You don't look like that. Sick burn, but also fuck you, Bobby. (laughs) Fuck you, Bobby. Fuck you, Bobby. Bobby. <laughs> Let's do some quickies. Okay. You're first. I'm first. Okay. This quickie comes from, um, again, I'm going to, as long as the quarantine quickies content is there, I'm going to keep doing coronavirus themed <laughs> quickies or quarantine themed quickies. But do this it. came from an article at the New York Post um, written by Hannah Fishberg. And it is about a new dating term or trend. Mm-hmm. Like we all know what like ghosted means. We all know what it means to be dumped. But do uh-huh. you know what it means to be zumped? I mean, I assume it has something to do with Zoom. Yeah. Okay. So it's a new (laughs) way that people are breaking up with each other over Zoom. So now you can also be Zoom. So a couple of people wrote in their experiences. Uh, Freelance writer and producer Julia Moser, uh, 26 years old, wrote BuzzFeed and said it didn't help that the internet connection wasn't great. So we kept freezing and I said, we're breaking up. And we were, it was just very surreal. (laughs) Um, It says uh, for her and others, the app is now a place for conferences and catch ups happy hours, and heartbreak. Julia Moser had gone on three dates with a... I love that it says a vegan man. She had gone on three... (laughs) With a vegan man. Uh, She had gone on three dates with a vegan man um, that she gave the pseudonym Josh. I guess she's protecting... See how sweet. She's even protecting him and his identity during this time. But she went on uh, three dates with him. that's the pseudonym. I mean... Josh. Um, Josh. (laughs) I'm surprised they didn't give him like a vegan pseudonym. That's what I thought too. I'd be like meatless Mo like zucchini, <laughs> zucchini John. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, she 
they had hit it off uh, before the quarantine hit. They separately sheltered in place. So they did not quarantine together. Thank God. Yeah. They had great chemistry and inc- incredible banter. She said, three of my top five best kisses of all time. Mm-hmm. And they decided to continue the relationship via Zoom dates. She said, altogether, we talked every day for a little under two months. She's currently isolating in her childhood home with her parents. She said it felt lovely to have a confidant during this uncertain time, even if our relationship was also in this on-hold limbo state where I didn't even know when I'd see him again. But apparently the relationship would not last because in a Zoom call, Josh explained that he thought that he was ready to date again a year after ending a seven-year-long relationship, but then he realized that he wasn't. The Zooming was just too much for him right now. It was too much. <laughs> what else does he have to do? Yeah, she says that he was compassionate and nice the way that he broke up with her and that he was honest and forthright. And she's grateful, though, that she was zumped instead of ghosted. So That's true. Good yeah. for him. Good on Josh. Good on vegan Josh. Yeah. So she took to Twitter and tweeted out to the Twitterverse and said, am I the first person who's been dumped via Zoom? And then the tweet went viral. And then it led to a BuzzFeed article that showed where other people were expressing their experiences with being zumped. And so one person said, my college boyfriend broke up with me via FaceTime while she was in Paris, the city of love on Christmas Day, the most wonderful time of the year. (laughs) And then uh, another person shared that they were once laid off via PowerPoint. And some people on Twitter are saying that breaking up with someone on during a global pandemic over video conferencing is actually quite the power move. One person said, thinking about picking up a boyfriend during this shite (laughs) solely so I can break (laughs) up with him via Zoom. Sure. If that's how you need to entertain yourself during this pandemic... No judgment. Go right, right ahead. No judgment. Go right <laughs> ahead. So apparently love and dating is difficult even via video conferencing. Do you think that, you know how you can change your background in Zoom? Do you think that there's like an appropriate background for being dumped? Like, What if it was just like a picture of you making out with a new person? <laughs> And then he just didn't say anything. You just put, it was just a picture of you making out with another dude. And then you just stared blankly into the screen. <laughs> and the person's just like, okay, I get it. Um, well, I love that. I mean, I don't love that for people who are getting zumped, but you know, I like that they're making the most of it. I like that yeah. BuzzFeed is constantly finding content. Yeah. <laughs> and exploiting people's tweets for their profit. Amazing. I love it. All right. Well, my quickie is not about people love, so nobody getting dumped, but it's about the love of a pet, which you understand. I do love Um, my pets. But my cold, cold heart can't. Last week, police got multiple 911 calls about a man who was driving recklessly in Seattle. The 51-year-old driver apparently hit at least two cars on his 
his drive through Seattle. And then he was finally stopped by police about 40 miles north of the city. They tried to pull him over, but he refused to stop. He led police on a chase, sometimes exceeding speeds over 109 miles an hour. Wow. Uh, one of the troopers attempted the to rush? corner the... What's the rush? We're What's in quarantine. Rush? Where do you going? have to go? <laughs> so one of the police was like, tried to corner him to like get him to pull over. And uh-huh. he looked inside the guy's car and realized that it was a pit bull sitting in the driver's seat while the man steered. So what? (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) So as the duo were trying to get away from police, they drove onto a bike trail. This is in Snohomish County that is usually like super crowded, but thankfully at this time it was like miraculously empty and nobody was hurt. So eventually the troopers had to put out those spike strips and popped his tires. And then he crashed his 1996 Buick Park Avenue onto the side of a highway. No one was injured. But when police questioned him, they he said, oh, it's not my fault that the car was driving so erratically. I had been, I was teaching my dog how to drive. Oh my God. Were there (laughs) drugs involved? There was definitely something. And the troopers are like, I wish I could could make this up. I've been a trooper for almost 12 years now and I've never heard this excuse. I've been in a lot of high-speed chases. I've stopped a lot of cars and I've never gotten an excuse they were teaching their dog how to drive. So police booked him on several charges, including, not surprisingly, driving under the influence, uh, reckless driving, hit and run, and felony eluding. So as for the dog, the police officer said that the very sweet girl was taken to the animal shelter after her owner was arrested. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Do you think you think your dogs could drive, Jen? I mean, maybe, um, maybe no judgment. This dog was just doing the best it could. I don't think my dogs could drive, but I have a really cute picture, which I'll post of this time that Louise, my daughter, she was probably like three at the time. She Uh tried to run away and there's a picture of her in the driver's seat of my car. It it was parked. She didn't have the keys. And Miles, my dog was sitting in the front seat with her. Like she was leaving and she was taking Miles with her. (laughs) (laughs) It was really cute. Apparently, one time when I was little, I was like, I'm running away, and I packed my entire set of encyclopedias. Aw, that's so cute. <laughs> that's so Sally. My parents were like, you're not going to be able to carry those, so good luck. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I remember my friend um, Julia Esquino and I used to run away, like, weekly. Her mom would make, like, like Italian mothers would always make, like, a week's worth of chicken cutlets for the week yeah. on Sunday <laughs> and use the chicken cutlets for, like, Parmesan or whatever, you know. And so um, we would run away on Sundays after the chicken cutlets were done. We would pack them all up and put them in our backpack. <laughs> I was just like, run away to the <laughs> park. We would, <laughs> <I know. laughs> we would run away with the chicken cutlets at this uh, Beaver Dam Park, and then we would uh-huh. come back when we were tired and bored. <laughs> come back after you'd eaten, eaten you all fell. the chicken cutlets. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Oh my god, yeah. maybe I should teach my dogs to drive. Hi, friends. What are you doing Friday, April 24th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time? Nothing? 
awesome because we're going to have a dumb love Zoom stand-up comedy show with our hilarious comedian friends. We have comedians from Comedy Central, from Late Night Television. We've got Andy Woodhall, Tom Takar, Carmen Lagala, Katie Hughes, Gilbert Lawlin, Mike Albanese, Mark Kendall, and us, Sally and Jen. So if you want to join, and we would love for you to join, go to our website, dumblovepodcast.com, and you click the donate button. You donate any amount, and you get to see the show. All of the money that you donate will go directly to the performers who are all out of work. So once you donate on Friday, April 24th, we'll send you an email with the Zoom link and at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time, grab your drinks, grab your co-quarantiners, sit back and watch the show. We hope to see you for our very first Dumb Love Zoom comedy show. It's going to be a whole thing. Hey, Sally. Yes, Jen. Are you ready for a crazy story? I'm super ready for a crazy story. Because this one is pretty nuts. This came from a few articles, including an article for WRAL, and then a really great article written for this website called Times of Oman. This also came from an episode of Scorned Love Kills, and the title of the episode is called Caskets and Strippers. What? I can't wait. Get ready. Okay. (laughs) Those are my two favorite things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so 27-year-old funeral director, Mark Bowling, uh, lived – this was in 1998, and he was living in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, which is a really small southern town. He was quite famous in his town because he owned all of the bowling funeral homes. He had several of them. Uh, have you heard? <laughs> Do um, you know? No, but I, but I heard that, as you said it, as like a combination – Bowling alley and funeral home. Oh man, <laughs> like he, he owned all the bowling funeral <laughs> homes. <laughs> That's a great idea. Um, not a bad idea. So, kind of a big deal because he had he was known to have a lot of money, and he he owned all these bowling alley funeral homes, and he was like six foot. 225 pounds, they said, athletic and good looking. So he was like the man about town, and apparently he liked lots of fancy jewelry. And watch like for himself, like man jewelry mm-hmm. and, um, uh-huh. and watches and stuff. And he loved hunting. Uh-huh. He had between they said he had between seventy five to a hundred guns. Wow! And I guess cool. in this small southern town, that's something to really be proud of to have seventy five to a hundred guns. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Uh, so in October of nineteen ninety eight, he was hired to direct the funeral of a local woman. That's where he met her 19-year-old daughter named Rose because she was there getting everything in order. And she was young, 19, beautiful, and he really took a liking to her. So he did something that was out of the ordinary, which was he actually slipped her his digits at the funeral. At her mom's funeral? Yes. Cool. I know. The funeral was like on a Friday, and then on that Sunday, they went out on a date. And Sparks flew immediately. I mean, she was 19 and he was older. He was 27. So he was like this older Uh guy and she was 19 and her mother had just passed away. She was super vulnerable. And here was Mm -hmm. this successful older dude that was showing her attention. So she was like, this is – He owned bowling alleys. Yeah. And then they ended up sleeping together that night. And that was Mm -hmm. where she actually lost her virginity to him. 
know. I know. He's it's Louise. Super impressionable. So then they start dating, and she was madly in love with him. She was in so much pain and loss and then sees this attractive older man who's successful and showing her love and attention. She's like, and this was like her first love really. And so she was all about him. After a few months after they were dating, Mark ends up meeting another woman. Her name's Julie Marshall. Mm -hmm. And she was a bereavement counselor in a terminal cancer hospital in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. So maybe- I wonder if that's how they met because he was an undertaker and she was a bereavement counselor. I'm not sure. She was actually a, a little bit older than him. She was mm-hmm. 37 and Mark was 27. So she was 10 years older than him, but she was, you know, she could still be hot at 37, you guys. Like 37 yeah. is not old, so fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so young. He was still very attracted to her. And also, you know, she kind of had the image that he was looking for. She was like a proper Southern blonde woman. She was also successful. It was the right image that he wanted to portray in this town. So after only five months of dating young Rose, he ends up leaving her for Julie. And he told Rose that he was, not only was he leaving her, but that he was going to marry Julie. And Rose was absolutely devastated. So, jeez. Yeah, poor Rose. So Mark and Julie end up marrying very quickly, and they right away become like the town's power couple. They're successful. They're attractive. That's all you need to be to be powerful. Yeah, right. You only need to be <laughs> successful and good looking. So they yeah. uh, they move into their dream town in a very upscale neighborhood of Rocky Mount. They get two dogs. Uh-huh. They're like living their best lives. Julie ends up becoming his yeah. business partner at the funeral home. They were such a power couple that there were billboards all over town of the two of them together as this like happy couple. I guess like the king and queen of funerals, I guess. I'm just... I guess. I'm just imagining poor Rose. I know. Who's just like seeing this now. If this was a movie, it's like everywhere she turns, she can't get away from them. I know. How heartbreaking. So Julie and Mark like seemingly are this happy, loving couple with the perfect Mm -hmm. life, essentially. But in 2005, after six years of marriage, things started to go south with them. Apparently there was a Mm -hmm. lack of intimacy. It's reported that she was infertile and she couldn't really have kids. So that was taking a toll on them. To everyone else, they still looked like they were the perfect couple. And then one day when Mark is at work at the funeral home in walks Rose. And so she was actually there to make funeral arrangements for her father. So now she's lost her mother and her father. It's very... Very sad. And so she's 26 now and she's married and she has three kids, but she never really got over her feelings for Mark because he was her first Uh love. She lost her virginity to him. I'm sure she's still seeing him all around town. So she still loved him, but they were living completely different lives. Rose was living in a small trailer with her husband and kids and he was living in this huge house in this upscale neighborhood that has all these businesses. And so Rose keeps looking at his life and Julie and seeing it as like, this could have been my life. You know, I could right. have been. This was, I was like, yeah, I was first in line. Yeah. Yeah. And then this. Yeah. Okay. So Mark and Rose start communicating again after they mm-hmm. saw each other at the funeral home. They start, it starts out slow with like texting, calling just, Oh, let's just catch up. And it started out mm-hmm. innocent, but then a month later they make plans. Jen, it was not, in- it, was it was not innocent. innocent. 
Never innocent. And so they ended up making plans to meet up in person. Terrible idea. Mm-hmm. So they end up- To chat. Yeah, just to chat. At a hotel. Yeah. Nope. They met at his funeral home apartment. Apparently, oh, he had an gross. apartment there for when he would work late and just want to crash there. And that was also where they kept like additional caskets. Like, did mm-hmm. he sleep in the casket, Dracula style? Maybe? I mean, in the movie that I'm writing about this? Yes. yes. <laughs> so they <laughs> so they immediately start their affair. When she goes over there, of course, it becomes an affair. Mm-hmm. So in early of 2006, Mark's best friend is getting married, and Mark is the best man. So, of course, he's given the task of throwing the bachelor party. So uh-huh. Mark ends up throwing the bachelor party in his funeral home apartment. And it's like, dude, <laughs> give so much money. Give money. Go to the Holiday Inn. Right? <laughs> you have to do it in your funeral home apartment with cat. This is the tense, the title of caskets and strippers. Oh, I get it. Get it now. <laughs> so I get it. Okay. So he ends up having a bunch of strippers. He hires a bunch of strippers through an escort service, which I guess uh-huh. are they just escorts then? I don't know. So they end up having a bachelor party. So they're having this like big, crazy like loud party bachelor party with strippers everywhere and there are literally dead bodies downstairs isn't that i don't they probably don't they the dead bodies probably didn't care maybe they were like this one last like a woke up weekend at bernie's yeah (laughs) like they brought the bodies up oh my god what if they weekend at bernie oh my god so one of the strippers is named ashley and she's 24 she's got short blonde hair very pretty and mark immediately Mm -hmm. takes a liking to her so (laughs) of course he does so they exchange numbers and not long after that they have they start having did it start did it start off as friends like they were like let's just catch up and talk about that awesome party actually and like really get to know each other no actually off the bat it starts out as a business arrangement it's an affair i guess but it's he's paying her he's a becomes a regular client of her right Um, and they even said how much it was like he would uh, every time he would call her he would pay her between 180 to 200 dollars an hour dang dang yeah so mark is now married to julie and having an affair with rose and then regularly paying this escort ashley to come over and have sex with him Mm -hmm. so but this whole time he's telling rose that you know she's the one for him. He loves her, right. and that they should mm-hmm. have been together this whole time. And Rose obviously doesn't know anything about the escort. And Mark is telling Rose like, "We're going to be together someday. Once I can get all of this figured out, it's going to be you and me." And in the meantime, mm-hmm. Julie doesn't know anything about any of these women. The thing is, Mark Poor never Julie. intended to divorce Julie because they had this business together, and right. he thought that if they split, that it would ruin him financially. Um, right, of course. So. In the fall, it's always about the money. It's always about about the money. The dollar bills. So in fall of 2006, Julie starts to notice that some things are up. Like he's out, Mm -hmm. he's out all the time, and money is just disappearing because escorts are very expensive. She's like, or you're staying in your apartment when we live in a small town, and you could just 
walk home. Yeah, yeah. Like, why do you want to sleep with dead bodies? They weren't dead right. bodies he was sleeping with. <laughs> um, so apparently the business was also not doing well because Mark had tried to expand too fast, too quickly. Mm-hmm. He just wanted more funeral homes and more funeral homes. But it wasn't working <laughs> out. So he was stressed out about the money. And so then he would call on his escort more and more often. It was like spiraling out of control. But apparently Ashley, the escort, also had some very dark secrets, as they put it. Um, So she had a criminal history and she had, this is so strange to me. Okay, so she had a criminal history and had been caught writing a series of fraudulent checks, like 12 Uh to be exact. And so when the escort service (laughs) found out about the bad checks, they fired her. They will not You're you're surprised at the... Yeah. Constitution's fine. Fraudulent checks, no. We will not. I wonder if they're just like, we're a service that is, or a business that is under so much scrutiny that we can't have. That's probably it. We can't have we can't have people working for us who are doing drugs or writing bad checks or they're just like if you would write bad checks you might also steal right. from us. Right. True, true. True. Yeah. And honestly, my feelings on sex work is as long as you are a consult like consulting adult, consenting adult, sorry, not consulting. Mm-hmm. Consenting as long adult. As you're a consultant. As <laughs> you are a sex consultant. And you are an expert. <laughs> no, as long as you are a consenting adult within your right mind and you are empowered, mm-hmm. I say go for it. Sure. That's how yeah. I feel. Absolutely. So anyway. Absolutely. So now, not only is Mark Ashley's only source of income, so mm-hmm. because she's oh because she got fired yeah, so she's relying on him but she's looking at him like if i was your wife i'd be set up he's a rich uh-huh. guy living in this nice house and now she also wants mark to be with her and rose right so now it's not just a client he's so now she wants to be with mark rose mm-hmm. wants mark to be with her and he's married to julie what's a funeral director to do what's a guy to do I don't know. I'm I'm on the edge of my seat. Oh, my God. So Julie starts to get calls um, from vendors that bills aren't getting paid. So she starts to look more and more into the business finances. And that's when she finally confronts Mark. Like, what is up? Where's all of our money? What is happening here? And Mark finally confesses to her about the business financial problems, but he does not come clean about the affairs or the strippers. Right. Or the well, yeah, because he's a piece of shit. Yeah, but so Julie's all supportive, and is I'm like, gonna feel real bad talking bad about him when he dies. But well, go ahead. Uh, so <laughs> Julie was supportive and was like, "It's okay, we're gonna get through this." You know, she was just like being a very supportive wife, and was mm-hmm. like, "It's all right, we're gonna we're gonna work this out." So that December, Mark decides to go scuba diving with his friends because that scuba diving is always the solution, like, right? When you are hard up for money, scuba dive about it. Why not go scuba dive? That's what. <laughs> that's, I mean, in fact, that's what I'm spending my stimulus check on. I gotta go scuba dive about it. So. Um, <laughs> His, so he went scuba diving with his friends, and the plan was that was supposed to be for him to go have fun and de-stress and take his mind mm-hmm. off of the fact that they were in financial ruin. So the plan uh-huh. was that he was going to go scuba diving with his friends, and then when he got back, him and Julie were going to go on a nice romantic cruise together. Uh-huh. That was the plan. But one day after Mark leaves for his trip, the Nash County Police Department received a 911 call 
and it's Julie's coworker. She was worried because Julie hadn't show up, shown up for work that day and she wasn't answering her uh-huh. calls. So Aww. she went by her house to check on her. And when she got there, she found Julie lying in a pool of blood in her garage and she had been shot three times. This makes me so sad. It's so sad. I was really hoping it wasn't Julie. No. She's the, the only good most one. innocent person. I know. I know. And so <sighs> okay. when police get there, they're totally stumped because it doesn't look like a robbery because her purse was mm-hmm. sitting right there beside her. There were no shell casings. There were no witnesses. But also, where is Mark? And so mm-hmm. when they find out, fi- finally find him, they realize he's out scuba diving with friends. It couldn't have been him. He had an alibi. He was gone. But when they find him and they tell him that his wife has been murdered, he's just in complete shock. Can't really say anything. He's just in total shark. Shock. Yeah. Sharks. Sharks. <laughs> and shark. I mean, he was scuba diving. Yeah. <laughs> so they take him to uh, into the sheriff's office for questioning. And Mark admits to them that, like, listen, I'm not the perfect husband. I have had affairs, mm-hmm. but, like, none of this mm-hmm. is important. None of this has anything to do with what happened to Julie. And the police are like, uh, yeah, dude, this is very important. What are you talking right. about? And so Mark gets nervous and tells them about who the women were and said, you might want to look into this person. Her name's Rose. And so he tells okay. them that she was one of the women that he was having an affair with, but that she was also stalking him. He called her all these names. He said that he, she was a stalker, that she was a whore, that she tried to poison their dog. Very fatal attraction type shit. Was that true? Well, so they well we'll see. Okay, sorry. <laughs> they bring in Rose for questioning, and she pretends she doesn't even know who Julie Bowling is. And the police see her car sitting outside the station, and they pull a fast one on her, and they go, um, "Oh, I see your car right there. Does your car have GPS?" And then Rose says yes, and they go, "Yeah, we know. That's why we contacted them today, and they told us everywhere you were today. You burnt." <sighs> You're burnt. You're burnt. So then Rose breaks down and admits everything. She says that she admits that it was her that went to the garage that morning, that she cornered Julie, and that she shot her. But the police (gasps) want to know why, you know? And at first, um, Rose is totally keeping mom about everything. That's all she'll tell them is that she's the one that did it. It was her. Then the police tell her that the reason that they even got her name was because Mark Bowling had told them that it was her to look into mm-hmm. her because she had been stalking them, Rose completely flips the fuck out. And she was like, wait, yeah. what? And then so she tells them everything, that it was Mark that put her up to it. He said that they were going to be together, and he told her to do it. So she tells him where the weapon was buried, and the weapon was uh-huh. buried in the cemetery where her mother was buried. So like <gasps> they, like Mark like went with her, and they buried the gun in their cemetery so oh my god yeah and was it one of his 100 guns i'm yeah. sorry so so they arrest <laughs> you're like i'm getting to that Sally. god damn it so they arrest rose on the spot but they're obviously uh-huh. still very suspicious of mark and because oh, another thing too is when they interviewed mark when they told him that she had been murdered he never asked like how did she die he never asked uh-huh. any of those things, but he still Idiot. insists that Rose acted alone. So now it's just uh-huh. Rose's word against Mark's word. So the police start to talk to everyone that they know, and they go to and talk to all of the employees at the funeral home, 
And all, the employees were like, dude, he's been banging escorts in the funeral parlor for years. <laughs> this goes all the way to the top all floor. The time. <laughs> and so that's how the police get led to Ashley. Ashley tells the police that in November, he offered her $25,000 <gasps> to kill his wife, but she declined. Idiot. And she was like, no. So then he goes to Rose and he goes to Rose and tells her that like, I can't divorce Julie you know but if she killed her then they could finally be together and they would be set because yeah a year before julie's death he took out a sizable life insurance policy on julie um Mm. so he also apparently like totally played into rose's emotions by telling her if she didn't do it that he was going to kill himself and so Cool, cool, cool. Fucking asshole. So the day before the murder, he told Rose everything. He told her how the house was laid out, what time she would be home, all that stuff. And he also told her, and this was something that Rose quoted, was he told her, shoot until the gun stops. (sighs) Yeah. So the gun was a 32 caliber gun and Mark said that he didn't own a 32 caliber gun and he never has like mm-hmm. out of all of his 100 mm-hmm. guns none of them were a 32 caliber gun but then the police yeah. get a search warrant and when they search his house they find a box of 32 caliber bullets on a shelf idiot idiot you know why would he need 32 caliber bullets if he didn't have a 32 caliber gun for any of right. you guys that are still trying to piece this together <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I think I know who did it. (laughs) So on September 22nd, 2008, they go to trial and the prosecution paints a picture that Mark struggling financially and wanting to leave his marriage would have motive to kill Julie, collect the life insurance. That way he would save his business and then he would be free to be with whoever he wanted. But of course the defense is insisting that Rose acted alone. Um, But then Right. right when Rose was about to testify, Mark panics and the defense call for a recess. And about an hour later, Mark comes back and he pleads guilty to the murder. Yeah. Yeah. He was just like, it's, there's no way that it's all out there now. You know, he's not this upstanding Southern, like Christian funeral director guy. It's all out there now that he's, Everything about the escorts, about the affairs, and all this. And now Rose is about to tell them everything about the murder. And so Rose on the stand said that he offered her $50,000 to kill his wife, but that she told him, I don't want the money at all. All I want is to be with you. So she did it out of love for him. Rose pled guilty to second degree murder and was sentenced to 29 years without parole. And Mark pled guilty to second-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder, and he is mm-hmm. going to be released in 2023. What? Three years from now, this piece of shit motherfucker is going to be released. That's crazy. Isn't it? Isn't it? So how long was that? Like 10 years? I guess, yeah. So this happened in 2008. They went to trial. Yeah. So oh 12 years. So 10, so 12 years, 15, 15 yeah. years. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he's getting out. <laughs> Look at us doing math, math. in our heads. Quarantine math. <laughs> we still got it. <laughs> we still got oh, it. Man. So yeah. So that's the crazy story of Julie That's and Mark Bowling. That's a crazy story. 
that had so many good twists and turns. I didn't know who was going to die. I didn't know who did it. It was so good. Yeah. Well, it was very exciting. Rose, Great job. But also very much Mark. Very yeah. much. Yeah. I mean, Mark. Good on Ashley. I mean, she came forward, didn't protect him, told the truth, didn't and protect also him. Didn't take she, the money. right. When she was at a desperate point in her life where she totally could have taken that money because she needed it so badly, but I know. Didn't. So tell me you got a good love story. Ooh, I do. I got a good one. Okay. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. I do have a good love story. Good. I do have a good love story. Good. This comes from an article on the website roadsandkingdoms.com. It's by Pablo Medino Uribe. And a story on NPR by Lewis Gallo and also an article on BBC.com. Nice. Um, So my story today is about a Syrian man named Almataz Kedro. And Almataz is actually one of only six Syrian refugees who lives in Colombia. And this is a story of how love and war turned an economic student in Syria into a chef and father (gasps) in Colombia. I already love it. (laughs) Okay, so the story starts in Syria, where in 2012, the civil war there was worsening. And just as like a very simplified overview slash refresher of the Syrian civil war. So in March 2011, Syria's government led by President Bashir al-Assad was having an unprecedented challenge to its authority. So all of these pro-democracy protests, which were pretty peaceful at the time, erupted throughout the country. This was all part of the Arab Spring uprising. So protesters were demanding an end to the authoritarian regime. So Assad had been, like his regime had been in place since 1971 because his father was the president before him. So the Syrian government used violence to suppress all of these demonstrations, used police and military, paramilitary forces against this peaceful protest. And then so opposition militias began to form. And by 2012, this conflict had turned into a full-fledged civil war. And it was, it's more complicated than I can even begin to dig into. But there, at this point, there are Many other countries involved, including the U.S., Turkey, Russia, Iran, they're all backing various factions. And a lot of the fighting has fallen across religious lines. Okay, so this war has at this point caused hundreds of thousands of deaths, left more than 1.5 million people with permanent disabilities, including like almost 100,000 who've lost limbs. At least 6.2 million Syrians are internally displaced, while another 5.7 million have fled abroad. And that means that over 50% of the total population has been have been forced to leave their homes. And if you want yeah. to read more about this, which it's, I mean, it's so complicated and heartbreaking, I'll link to a couple articles that I read that laid it out pretty clearly that I was like, oh, okay, I think I kind of have a handle on it, which I'm sure I don't. But but this story starts in 2012. So the Syrian government banned all men between the ages of 18 to 42 from leaving the country so that they could fight in the Syrian army. And in 2013, the army started calling on Almataz to join. He was 23 at the time. And so he was living in Damascus with his family and studying economics in college And he knew that his choice was now that I could either stay in Syria and be forced to join the army and kill other Syrians, or I could try to escape. And since leaving was illegal, he would have to 
pay someone money that his family didn't have in order to sneak him across the border. And then, but leaving would also mean that he couldn't come back because once you leave, you're a traitor to the country. And he would also have to, it would mean leaving his parents and his four siblings forever. So he wasn't a fighter. Amataz is a very sweet person, very loving. And he also had a good reason to leave. He was in love with a woman named Jessica Diaz who lived in Bogota, Colombia. So he'd actually met Jessica in this kind of random, wonderful way. His father owned a supermarket in Damascus. And down the street, there was a merchant who he often worked with who was named Dimitri, and he was Greek and Colombian. And Dimitri and Amataz's father were good friends. So they got to talking about their kids. And his dad said Amataz had studied English. And Dimitri was like, oh, I have a good family friend in Colombia whose kids also are learning English. Maybe they can be pen pals. So Amataz and Jessica were the two kids. They started talking online and like Skyping and emailing as a way to practice their English and they became friends. And then Jessica won a scholarship to spend a year studying abroad in Turkey and Amataz went to visit her. And this was before the borders had closed. So they had already formed a close bond, but as soon as they met in person, uh-huh. they fell in love. Aww. They knew they wanted to plan a life together. Almata says, I instantly knew she was unlike other girls. She's always thinking about how to make her country better. She has a big heart. And he said she was just so natural. Jessica loved that Almataz was serious. He said, she said, Colombian men only want sex. And she said, Amataz <laughs> respected me. Uh-huh. <laughs> just kind of Amataz said, I believe that every man has a heart for one woman and Jessica is my heart. Oh. And I know. And so the war had already started, but at that time when Jessica was in Turkey, it didn't seem like it was going to last that long. So They made a plan to get married and have Jessica move to Syria because there she could study for free and Almataz could finish his degree and they could start a family. But then Jessica's student visa expired, so she had to go back to Colombia where she was studying philosophy at college. And Almataz went back to Syria, but they started to make their plans. And she said it was so hard to leave him. She said, when you love someone, all you want is to be with that person. And it's so far away. It's like – It's so far away, yeah. It's the size of the world. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> – Right. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm a, if you say right? so. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it not Colombia and – No, no, no. It is. It's your one <laughs> – I just mean that I don't know precisely, but yes. (laughs) We've talked about how poor I am at geography. Um, So, so yeah, so they're, they're, they're worlds apart. Um, But the, okay. So the war just kept getting worse. Like they kept thinking this is going to be over. We'll bring her over here. We'll get married. But then, then the army started calling on Almataz and like asking oh. him, but not asking him, pressuring him. him to join. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then a bomb hit his father's supermarket <gasps> and bullets would like regularly hit his family's house. Oh my God. And they now knew of course that bringing Jessica to Syria was not an option, but with the borders closed and the army calling, it was also not an option for Almataz to leave easily either. But his family with the bomb decided it was time for him to leave. So his father sold his car 
and Almataz used that money to be smuggled over into Lebanon. And once he got there, he tried to get a a Colombian tourist visa, but he was denied. So he could only stay in Lebanon for like a, a week or something. I think that was under their rules. They could only stay there for a week or a month. And so he ended up moving to Istanbul because there were a lot of Syrian refugees there. And he hoped that he could make enough money to fly to Colombia. But Istanbul, like I said, is, it's full of Syrian refugees, and many of them are not treated very well. Almataz worked hard. He took any job he could, but he was often underpaid or not paid at all. And there was nothing he could do. You know, He was an illegal immigrant, and there was no one to complain to. And Jessica wanted to go to Turkey so that the two of them could get married, and then Almataz could apply for a Colombian visa. But Jessica also didn't come from a wealthy family, and she couldn't afford mm. to to get to go. And so they came up with a plan. They would get married online. So in Colombia, you can actually sign a document um, which grants somebody else the legal authority to sign any document for you, even a marriage contract. So Almataz authorized Jessica's mom to sign for him, and they went to find a public notary in Bogota to marry them. And Almataz went to an internet internet cafe and he Skyped into his own wedding. Oh my God. And yeah, so he said when he saw Jessica on the screen, he got super emotional. Aww. She was wearing a white dress, had white flowers. And Jessica said that when she saw him, she felt her heart go out of her body. Aww. And then they said, I do. And people in the internet cafe where Almataz sat all clapped and congratulated him. <gasps> How sweet. And yeah, it was very sweet. But then, so they went to apply for a spouse visa, but Almataz was denied. Oh, they God. said that in order for him to get a visa, Jessica would need to be in Turkey with him for him to come back to Colombia. And so many re- many countries will allow refugees from war-torn areas to apply for refugee status from abroad, but Colombia is not one of those. And actually, in order to apply to get a refugee visa, Almataz would have to be physically in Colombia. So they were stuck because Jessica couldn't afford to go to Turkey. Almataz couldn't get to Colombia. So Jessica got desperate, and she called the only mosque in Bogota to ask for help. And one of the members of that mosque, who was a Colombian lawyer, was in charge of the email account. And he got Jessica's message. And he was like, hey, uh, like just randomly, I am in Istanbul right now vacationing, and I will go meet Almataz. Wow. And Almataz said, God is great. Finally, it seemed like my dream of being with my love might become true. But there was a problem. So they met up and... The Colombian lawyer didn't speak English and Almataz didn't speak Spanish. And so they met in front of a mosque and they were trying to like talk to each other, but they couldn't communicate. And so they just, but they just happened to catch another lucky break. So as they're trying to talk to each other, a Palestinian man who had once lived in Mexico happened to be passing by and offered to translate for them. Wow. Right. So they, so here they are. So now they're able to communicate. And the lawyer didn't have great news, but he said, he basically told Almataz that he needed $3,000 to get a plane ticket to Ecuador and then another $1,000 to then travel from Ecuador to Colombia, where he could then apply for refugee status. And Almataz says, when I heard that, I felt ill. Like, where was I going to get $4,000 working as a refugee in a foreign country? I was lost and defeated. And so he's talking about his this impossible situation with another Syrian friend whose name is Abu Farif. 
And Abu was so touched by Almataz and Jessica's story that he said, I'll buy you the plane ticket. <gasps> and Abu only had one condition. He said, Almataz must be an exemplary Muslim. He had to work hard. He had to be a good family man. He had to be a good host. He had to be devout. And he had to show the people of Colombia the beauty of their faith. Wow. So that with that promise, he bought him a ticket. And now it was August 2014. And Almataz, after flights to United Arab Emirates and Brazil, he finally got to Ecuador. And Jessica was there waiting for him. And he said it was the greatest feeling. She felt like finally we're going to be together. But they also had to get him across the border. So together they took a bus to Colombia and they passed through four different checkpoints, but no one ever stopped him. And because he had olive skin and dark hair, they thought if he doesn't speak, he could pass for Colombian. Wow. So at one point, guards actually came on the bus to check papers and Almataz pretended to be asleep and they took every single other person's papers but his. Wow. And then at another checkpoint, yeah, so another checkpoint, Jessica had to show her papers and Almataz kind of like moved behind a guard and by some stroke of luck, they just skipped over him. And so they got into Colombia and then once he was there, this nonprofit helped Almataz get refugee status. And so now they're there, they're married. Um, but he still felt pretty lost. He he didn't he had no money. He didn't speak Spanish. He had no degree. And the people at the mosque in Bogota, where he thought he could go for help, were actually not very friendly. And so he had started, because they needed money, he started selling empanadas that Jessica's mom made outside of the mosque. But they were like, you can't be here. You have to move. So he then got various jobs at Middle Eastern restaurants, but he couldn't really find anything steady. So Jessica and Amataz together made just enough money to get their own little apartment near Jessica's family on the outskirts of Bogota in a town called Suba. But some months they were struggling to pay their rent. Amataz's mom told him over Skype, hey, how about instead of selling empanadas, why don't you do what you know, like make Syrian food? And so Amataz didn't really know how to cook. But so every night he would Skype with his mom and she would teach him how to make the food of his country. Oh, how sweet. So, yeah. So the first couple of times where he said it was a disaster, like, he, so he was like not hopeful. But his mom said, Arabic food is difficult, but with patience, you'll make it work. And he said sometimes he would talk to his mom and he would hear bombs going off in the background. And sometimes they couldn't talk because the internet in the city oh, would be God. out because of the fighting. Can you imagine that feeling? I know. So you're, yeah, you're like worlds away and you, there's nothing you can do. She taught him how to make Syrian pitas and he was able to sell them to local Mexican restaurants and some people around the neighborhood. And then eventually he got to the point where he started to know a few recipes. So he went back to that nonprofit that had helped him with his refugee status and he applied for a grant and got enough money to buy a food cart with a grill. And so every night he continued to Skype with his mom. He would get on at midnight in Colombia where it was morning in Syria and he would cook her recipes and she would walk him through it. And then in the mornings, he and Jessica would go to a nearby park and sell the Syrian street food. And little by little, he started to learn Spanish because he, you know, he was talking to the locals and people loved his food. Most of the Middle Eastern food in the area were, you know, kind of Colombianized. And so, but this was authentic Middle Eastern food, you know, it's falafel. And and so, and, and he's just like a very joyous person. And so people were just 
really loved him mm-hmm. and they loved Jessica. They loved their story. And then Jessica got pregnant and the two were overjoyed and they knew they needed something more substantial to support their growing family. And so this small drugstore in their neighborhood shut down. They decided it was time to open a restaurant. And so that same nonprofit helped again, this time with the first month's rent for the restaurant. And the two opened the restaurant the same week as their son, Adam, was born. Aww. Yeah. And they named the restaurant Albanun, which is basically is an Arabic phrase that means children come blessed. Aww. And and just as they had when he had his cart in the park, the neighbors flocked to his store, both for him and for the food. And it grew. And now, so it's now it's not just neighbors, but it's expats and foodies who flock to his restaurant to taste this authentic Syrian food. And it's become so popular that he and Jessica has now have now opened a second location. And Jessica said, it's the food we create with our heart and our love. And people line up on the weekends around the block to get a seat. <gasps> oh my God. I and love that. yeah, and he's kind of now like a renowned chef in Colombia. Wow. And and they're happy. They're very happy together. But Almataz's family is still stranded in Syria. So he had one brother who was able to flee to Germany, but his younger brother, Abdullah, has spent the last year actually hiding in his parents' house oh, um, because geez. he turned 22 and the Syrian army is looking for him. And Almataz and Jessica really want to bring his family to Colombia, but they don't, you know, it's hard to find the money to do it. But he has big dreams. He's like, this is what I'm, this is why I'm building this business and working toward is to bring my family here. He said when his family gets there, he wants to buy a big house, decorate it in the Syrian style and open a nice restaurant. He says his mom would cook and they would blow every Colombian and she'd blow every Colombian away. (laughs) And he says if Syria becomes peaceful again one day, he would go back there and start a Colombian food business there because they would love arepas. <laughs> um, but for now, Amataz sees Bogota as his home, and he works every day to keep his promise to Abu, who made it possible for him to come to the country by being a good Muslim, a good person, a good husband, and a good father. Oh, is there – That's my story. I love that. Is there any kind of fun that is set up to like – help get his family to Colombia? Um, you know what? Not that I – I think at one point there was a GoFundMe, but I tried to find it and it it wasn't. Oh, okay. It, wa- it was no longer active. And the last I found was like uh, an update from about a year ago, and it looked like he was still trying to get his family here oh, or wow. to Colombia. I so if we could find one. Yeah, I will keep looking, okay. and if there is one, we'll post it. Dude, yeah. great story. Thank you. Thanks. You know who found that for me? Ben. Ben. Good old Ben. <laughs> oh, man. Are you ready to do um, something dumb and something I love? Yes, I am. Okay, I'll start. You're up. Um, so I guess something dumb is definitely um, – homeschooling is very difficult – I don't know uh-huh. all your parents out there trying to homeschool right now. Even though it's not like a ton of work, it's just enough to make your children hate you and make you want to rip <laughs> your hair out of your head. <laughs> they just don't want to listen to us. You know, they love their teachers, but yeah. they don't listen to us. And but the something I love is I, I have so much appreciation for teachers. 
Um, and they have been doing, my kids' teachers have been doing such a wonderful job, like managing this entire experience with yeah. reading them stories via Zoom and teaching them Zoom and uh, um, teaching them via Zoom and lovely letters of encouragement. The teacher that my daughter has, I she's actually, she used taught my son twice for two different years and then taught oh, really? her. So I feel like she's like a part of the family. And so it's like funny because when she's, I hear her teaching Louise or reading a story. I'm like, can I listen? Because your voice is just really comforting right now. <laughs> but I just, like, I just have so much respect for her. I'll never forget that when, when Sully was in pre-K and she was a teacher, I did mystery reader. So I, I was standing outside What's the class. mystery reader? It's where the kids don't know who's going to come read the story that afternoon. It's always parents. Yeah. So it's like, surprise, uh-huh. it's this person's mom or this person's yeah. grandma. And so I uh, did Mystery Reader in pre-K and I was like sitting outside the door and I could hear her um, be like, okay, guys, you know, take your seats. Take your seats, guys. What did I just say? Just to, and like, and I could hear like a little frustration in her voice. And I remember thinking uh-huh. to myself like, mm, I, don't, I don't know if I like that tone. <laughs> You know? And then like, and then I go in and like, not only like three minutes into trying to get these kids to listen to me, I'm like, shut the fuck up and stay down. <laughs> Do you want to hear that story? Because I will leave. I will leave right now. Like, it's just like the patience these people have is just, oh my God. God it's amazing. Bless them. I don't know how they do it. I couldn't even handle three minutes of trying to read a story to a class. <laughs> so God bless my kids' teachers and all the teachers out there. You are yeah. angels. Angels. So, so many teachers have kids themselves. So they're trying to manage teaching other kids and manage their own kids. It's just, it's nuts. I know. I mean, and I have- All the teachers out there, Tip, I tip my hat. Yes. I'm I so glad that my kid that is not teachers. in school. Yeah. I have friends that are teachers and have kids in- school too that they're trying to teach and it's just it's so hard it's so hard yeah um yeah you're all doing great everybody's doing great no matter what you're doing you're doing great exactly exactly yeah so Uh, what about yeah okay so my down today is like that i keep forgetting how much i love to bike i love to bike so a couple years ago I went. I was in Bloomington, uh, Indiana, doing shows at the Comedy Attic, and I like rented a bicycle. I just like you know they have this big long bike trail that goes through the middle of town, and I was like, I wonder if I can rent a bike. I haven't ridden a bike in years, but I'm gonna do it. And so you know, I rode this bike all day, and it was like my favorite day. It was like just awesome and joyful, and it wasn't like I was going out for like this big exercise. It was just like I'm just freedom and riding a bike on this beautiful bike trail. Yeah. And like, I kind of promised myself, I was like, I'm going to start biking. But then at the time I lived in New York and so I had a new baby and there was like no time, no opportunity to ride a bike. And then when we moved here, I was like, I'm going to ride my bike. And my in-laws actually got my bike completely like retuned for me and then brought it here. And then it's like sat in our carport for a year. Uh-huh. So finally, the, my thing I love is that last week, Ben pumped up my bike tires for me. Aww. And and now every day I've gone on like at least a short bike ride and I just love it so much. It's so fun to bike around. It really is. It, it, like you it said, really is. joyful. It is just it is. joy. It reminds you of being a kid. It does. And yeah. And I, yeah, I just love that. So anyway, so that is what I've been doing for happiness. My, nice. my, that's my Sally Happiness Project. 
That is so is, is finally kicking into gear. She's doing it. <laughs> she's doing, she's it. doing it. Awesome. <laughs> well, guys. Um, well, that was it. That was our episode. One more down. One more down. Um, a million more to go. More to <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for listening. We love you so much. Uh, yeah. Check out our Patreon Hit us up if on- you want some more content. <gasps> yeah, we're doing so much fun stuff over there. Yeah. We have videos. We have quickie episodes. Yeah. We have pictures. We have links. It's a lot of fun, of guys. That. It's a lot of fun. Um, you can also hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Dumb Love Podcast. You can email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com. Please go on iTunes. Give us a rate and review. We would love that so much. So do all those things and then also stay at home and do something dumb for love. Dum, da, dum, 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 da, 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 dum, da,